Hey, welcome to Veritas. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, uh, but sometimes Christians say some weird things. I noticed it uh, before I was a Christian. They, I'd always hear Christians throwing around this word, I'm saved, right? Or like, have you gotten saved? Or so-and-so's saved? Or so-and-so's not saved? I didn't really know what they meant when they were talking about people being saved or not saved. It sounded like a cool thing, something I'd probably want for myself, but I wasn't sure what the whole deal was. And in fact, after I became a Christian, I would have said, hey, I'm saved. But I'm not sure even at that point, I was really sure about what I was saying or what I meant by that word. Tonight we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It's kind of one of the best hits of the Bible. But in this passage, Paul explains what it means to be saved. He's going to tell us what this whole saved business is all about. Before we start, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, hey, so Paul, he's going to talk to us about what it means to be saved. And, and he tells us that this whole saved business, it, it's a three-act drama, a three-act transformational tale. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through each of those three acts, what it means to be saved. We're going to start in Act 1, of course. And Act 1 is this, being led in the wrong direction. Act 1, being led in the wrong direction. Have you ever gone the wrong direction somewhere, maybe driving, walking, running, I don't know, but have you ever gone the wrong direction and not known? Uh, A few years back, about five years ago, I was going on a bike ride with a few freshmen, Kevin and Tyler. We were going to the big tree, I think we got a picture, that's the biggest Baroque tree in the state of Missouri, so we were going to ride our bikes there, and I'd done this before. So we, we met on campus, we took the MKT all the way to the Katy Trail, which is where we saw this sign. And when we see this sign, I tell them, like, hey, guys, we're, we're only five minutes away from the big tree. We're almost there. And, of course, Kevin looks over at me, and he goes, well, which way, left or right? Now, truth be told, I wasn't totally sure which way it was, but I'd done the ride before. And so I just trusted my gut, and I said, it's for sure left. And he looks at me, and he goes, no, I, I think it's right. And I go, you've never done this before, freshman. I've done it. We're going left. So he's like, okay, whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll go left. So we're going left, five minutes passes, 10 minutes pass, 15 minutes pass, and he stops his bike and he goes, Patrick, I'm telling you, we went in the wrong direction. But this whole time I'm riding my bike, I'm actually convincing myself that we're going the right direction, that I had just gotten the timing all wrong. And so I look at him and I say, Kevin, if we're going the wrong direction, you can go on a date with my wife and my sister. I've never before or since made that bet with anyone. It was not a well-advised bet. (laughs) He goes, I'll take it. So (laughs) we keep writing 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. (laughs) And he stops again and he goes, Patrick, admit it. This is the wrong direction. I'm going on a date with your wife. (laughs) We never made it to Big Tree that day. Uh, You know, it's a silly story, but we've all been there following our gut, going the wrong direction. And in a lot of ways, I think it's a picture of our human nature. I think there's a reality that by our very nature, we tend to follow our gut. 
and go in the wrong direction, happily, unwittingly. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. By that he means our willful, knowing disobedience to God and his will for our life. He says you were dead in those in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, he means the devil. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul's saying here that it's in our nature to go the wrong direction. We've followed the ways of the world, the wrong direction. We've followed the devil. We've been led by the cravings of our flesh, our gut. That word flesh there, it's not talking about this stuff, The Bible's pro-body, pro-this stuff. What it's talking about is it's referring to our sinful, selfish nature. It's referring to the part of our psychology that's always asking, what do I want? What do I feel? What do people think of me? What will make me feel good? What do I need right now? The flesh is the self-oriented ego. It's the self-oriented ego And this is actually kind of hard for us to talk about today because we live in a culture where we actually tend to equate what our ego wants, what I desire, what I like. We tend to equate that with how God's made me. It's true not only in our views of sex and our views of gender, but it's true in far more than that. You see, we live in what I like to call the treat yourself culture. You guys have heard of treat yourself, right? I watch Parks and Rec. Okay, but that's, that's kind of our cultural moment where no one is going to ever question you for gratifying your selfish ego, right? We can just justify our choices by saying, look, I'm not hurting anyone. It's not a big deal. I need to treat yourself, you know? That's what I need right now. And it's not very hard, I don't think, to see how following that selfish ego, it drives us to the kind of crazy college lifestyle. I drink too many. It doesn't hurt anyone. Another hookup, no one's getting hurt. A Netflix binge, a shopping spree. It's a thing that can drive us to spending hours in the gym, obsessed with how we look. The thing that drives us to try on four or five different outfits before we can ever walk out the door. See, if we look at verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that Paul, he's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to people who are living, you know, kind of the live it up lifestyle, the college life, right? He's saying, you, he's talking to the Gentiles, you used to walk in the way of the world. You used to gratify the ego by being irreligious, living it up. But here's what's interesting about what Paul does next. He saw that the selfish ego can also drive us to become good people. In verse 3, he shifts the pronoun. He starts saying, we. He's talking to his fellow Jews, the most religious people out there, the, the best, the good people, right? He's saying, we, the good people, the religious people, we used to gratify the selfish ego. How? Well, it was by doing religious things, by being good people, by being nice people, not for the sake of others and not really for the sake of God, but so that others would think nice things about us because it made me look good. It made me seem like a big and important person. The selfish ego can drive us not just to be irreligious people, it can drive us to be religious people even. So what Paul's saying is he's saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're religious or you're irreligious. 
doesn't matter if you're living it up or you're a good person. In both cases, we can be driven by the selfish ego, by the flesh, by the part of ourselves that focus on what do I want? What do I feel? What makes me look good? And Paul is telling us this is the wrong direction. And when we gratify the ego, when we satisfy the flesh, it actually makes us dead. And even goes as far as to say deserving of God's wrath. We might be able to justify it to ourselves, but he's saying don't justify it to the flesh. The ego, that's going to kill you. And the question we want to ask, well, is how? How does that kill me? How does following what feels good for me kill me? I think the answer is, is that it takes us on the opposite direction from God. The one who is the source of life. That's how it kills us. You see, the direction of Jesus says, how can I give myself to others? The direction of self says, what can others give to me? The direction of Jesus says, I need you, God. The direction of self says, God, I want to use you. What do you have to offer me? The direction of Jesus wants to follow the will of God. The direction of self wants to follow whatever makes me feel good right now. The direction of Jesus does everything for God's glory. The direction of self says, how can I use everything for my glory? The direction of Jesus asks, how can I bless others? The direction of self says, what's in it for me? See, the way of the self says, God, I don't need you. I don't want you unless you got something to offer me. Otherwise, get out of my life. But he's the source of life. And every time we reject him, we're headed in the direction of death. And before we know it, we've gone a lifetime in the wrong direction. And as a result, we will find ourselves in the only place where there is no God and where there is only the self. That place is hell. You see, we don't just deserve God's wrath because we've rejected him. We want it because hell's the one place where I can be absorbed with the one thing that I love the most, me. Some of us tonight, we are minimizing the danger of our sins. We're saying, come on, it feels good, it's not that big of a deal doesn't hurt anyone, no harm. You're pursuing the flesh. You're headed in the direction of death. Others of us here tonight, we're feeling proud right now. We're saying, this doesn't apply to me. I'm a good person. But the reality is, if we're good people, so we look like good people, so people look up to us, if we do it for ourselves, we're going in the direction of death. God is calling us right now to turn from death, to turn from the self, from the ego, from the flesh, and to confess what we've done to him. Still, I know there's others of you here tonight, and you're feeling crushed. You're feeling crushed because of what happened this last weekend or what happened last night, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I see that I'm going the wrong direction. I see the problem, but I just don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to fix this. That's good. That's a nice song. <laughs> um, the good news is that there's a second act to this story. And here's the second act. The first act is this, 
we've gone the wrong direction. The second act is this. We've been rescued from the wrong direction. Paul continues, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our, tres- in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. It's incredible news. He's saying, because God is so rich in mercy, he sent his own son, Jesus, on a rescue mission. And this rescue mission, it's unlike any other rescue mission ever attempted because he's trying to rescue people who are already dead. But he's not just trying to rescue dead people. He's trying to make them alive. And so the question we have to ask, we're saying, I see I'm going the wrong direction. It's God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to rescue us? What's the solution? And here's the solution. It's to unite us to Christ. This is what Paul means when he says, uh, with Christ or in Christ. All those little prepositions, in Christ, with Christ. He's saying that God has united us with Christ. He's united us in Christ so that Jesus' works become our works. So that Jesus' death becomes our death. So that Jesus' life becomes our life. It can be a tough concept to understand, but it makes me think of the Hoyt family. Um, Richard Hoyt and his son, Ricky Hoyt. Ricky, he's uh, pictured here, I think, maybe. Do you have a picture? There he is. Ricky was born uh, in 1962 with cerebral palsy. Um, and so as a result, he's been a quadriplegic his whole life. And in 1975, when, when Ricky was 13, uh, his dad took him on a 5K benefit run. He pushed him in a cart through the entire run. And that night, Ricky was talking to his dad through his computer, and he told his dad this. He said, Dad, when I'm running, when his dad's pushing him, he says, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped anymore. His father realized for the first time that his son could feel like a normal kid playing sports, competing in sports. And this realization led him to sign up for over a thousand different races. And yet, everybody thought that Richard Hoyt, his dad, was crazy when he decided that he wanted to do an Ironman with his son. Richard was 72 at the time. Ricky was 52. The father, he was going to have to swim and pull his son in an inflatable boat 2.4 miles. He would need to bike with his son attached to the front 112 miles. And then he needed to finish it off by pushing his son in a cart 26.2 miles as he ran. This video shows what happened.
Oh, that's a tearjerker. <laughs> I love the end of it. When he's going through the finish line and he's celebrating with his dad, but it's not just his dad's victory, it's both of their both of their victories. It's a picture for us though of Jesus' rescue mission. Jesus is the one who's pulling the boat. He's the one pedaling the bike. He's the one pushing the cart. Because God's united us to him, we get to just go along for the ride. We get to share in his victory. We get to share in his work. And I know some of you might be thinking, but you don't know how bad I am. You don't know how dirty what I've done really is. But what you've got to see is that Jesus takes the people who are weak and failing and broken. Those are the only kinds of people he takes. You can't go too far in the wrong direction. Jesus will take you up no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you will do. It doesn't matter. Jesus can rescue you because thank God we aren't saved by what we do. We're saved by what he's already done. By grace, you have been saved. That's what Paul says. By grace, you have been saved. See, on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God. He experienced hell on those three hours, an eternal separation from his heavenly father. But because we've been united to him, we don't have to experience that death or that hell. Jesus rose from the dead. He was resurrected. But because we've been united to him, we get to share in his resurrection. God has made us alive with Christ. He's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God rescues us from death by uniting us to Jesus. By making everything that's true of Jesus, true of you and true of me. So how do we partake in this union? Well, the answer is really simple. Paul continues, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith, that's not from yourself, that's a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We're saved by faith in Jesus. What is faith? Faith's just trusting God. It's trusting God with our whole lives. It's saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this by, my, by myself. I need you. I need you to satisfy me. I need you to guide me. I need you to rescue me. And the question that often goes through our heads then is, but do I have enough faith? Is my faith really strong enough so that I can be rescued by Jesus? Well, let me answer that question with an illustration that Tim Keller uses. I want you to imagine two people boarding an airplane. The first person is terrified. They're full of doubts and fears about the plane and the crew and, re- and will it really work. The other person boarding the plane, though, she's got huge confidence. So they both enter the plane, they both fly off, and they both get to their destination safely. One person had 100 times more faith than the other person, but both were equally safe. You see, the amount of faith didn't really affect the outcome, did it? What really mattered was the object of their faith. Could the plane and the crew actually do it? Saving faith in Jesus isn't about how much you believe. It's not about a certain level of intellectual certainty or a lack of doubt or a lack of fears. The only question is this. Can Jesus really do it? Can Jesus really rescue me? 
faith, whether it's mountain-sized or it's microchip-sized, it's about trusting Jesus to rescue us more than we trust ourselves or anything else in this life. Have you trusted him? You can give yourself, your whole life, wholly to him because he's given his life wholly to you. He's given you his death. He's given you his life, his resurrection. He's given it all. And he is the only one who can take you to the end of the race. Stop trusting in the flesh, in the world, in the ego. Trust in the only one who can really save us, who can really rescue us and bring us back to life. In Act 1, we're headed the wrong direction. In Act 2, Jesus rescues us from the wrong direction. In Act 3, we're put in the right direction. Paul continues, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul's reminding us here, he's saying, look, you used to walk in the way of your sins. You used to follow the ways of this world, but now that Jesus has rescued you, he's rescued you so that you can follow him, follow him in good works. He's saying you've been recreated, you've been made into a new creation so that you can walk in these good works. In fact, God's prepared them for you ahead of time. There's two words here, handiwork, and creation that I want to focus on. And here's why, because they recall the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, when God created everything, and he made everything good. And Paul's doing this intentionally. He wants us to think about Genesis 1, because when Jesus rescues us, he makes us into a new creation. Creation starting all over again. He's renewing everything. In fact, he wants us to see that we're not just created anew in Christ Jesus, but we become God's handiwork. He's saying God wants to make your life into a piece of art. Your life into his handiwork, his artful work. And notice here that Paul says we. You see, you might think, oh, I'm a new creation. But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Yes, you become new. But we're only really Christ's new creation when we're doing it together. When, when everybody is being made into a new creation. We become a new creation as a group, not just as individuals. You can imagine it in this sense. Think of an orchestra ensemble, okay? And when Jesus rescues you, here's what he does. He gives you an instrument. He teaches you how to play the instrument. And then he gives you a musical part to play. But here's the thing. Jesus' piece, his music, it's a symphony. It's not a, a piece of music for just one person. So he starts rescuing more people and giving them instruments and giving them parts. And he's adding more and more and more people into this incredible ensemble. It's not until everybody's there and everybody's singing and everybody's playing their part in Jesus' new creation that we're really made new. Uh, there's a video I want to watch that I think illustrates for us what it's like to be brought into Jesus' new creation.
love that video. <laughs> First of all, I love it because the crowd just can't help but start participating all of a sudden. It's not just instrumentalists coming out who are clearly like stage. People just start singing in the crowd. They don't, I don't think they know what the words are, but they're just going to sing along. And for me, that captures the third act of what Jesus is doing. This is, this is what he's rescued us into. He's given us a part to play. And it's not a part that we play by ourselves. It's a part that welcomes in other people. And more and more people sing Jesus' song. And as we do it, we're a picture of his new creation. As the music team comes back up, I want to ask you, which part of God's story of salvation are you in? Which one of those three acts are you in right now? When I came to Mizzou, I was in act number one. I was dead in my sins and my transgressions. And I think I knew it deep down because I had this deep down emptiness and sense of death inside of myself. And I tried to satisfy myself. I tried to make myself feel better. I tried to gratify my desires, but none of it helped. The more I focused on myself, the more empty I ended up feeling. And it's not that I went out looking for Jesus. (laughs) It's that Jesus went looking for me. He found me through Christian friends. He found me through Veritas. And when my life was in the messiest, ugliest place that it's ever been, it was in that precise moment that Jesus found me and he loved me and he rescued me. It was in that moment. Since then, I've had doubts. I've had fears. But never once have I really deeply regretted giving him my whole life. He's the only one that knows what to do with my life. I've never regretted giving him my life. And I always thank God that he gave me this gift of faith. I don't know why he did, but he did. And he can give it to any of us here. It's just icing on the cake that he gave me a part in his new creation. So where are you tonight? Are you in act one? Is God calling you to confess because you're going in the wrong direction? God, forgive me. Are you in act two? Jesus, give me faith. I want to give my whole life to you. Are you in act three? God, I want to have a part. Give me my instrument. Give me my part to play. Tell me where to go. I'll go. Where are you? Let's just take a moment of silence and let's just pray to God. Wherever you're at in that story, just pray to God and ask him to be with you. And then we'll sing.